to a Hope 103.2 podcast. Hello, this is Colette Smart. I am a psychologist and a teacher, and I'm your host on Raising Teens. As a parent, I know that raising a teenager can be an incredible, exhilarating, and joyous journey. It can also be confusing and really lonely at times. On this podcast, we are going to be joined by well-known experts, where we chat about some of the most common questions that I get asked about raising teenagers in my own work. Our episodes are jam-packed with support so that you can get on with the job that you do best. That is connecting with, supporting and loving your team. On today's episode, I have two guests. They are both experts in the area of internet gaming disorder and they have so much practical advice for us. My first guest is Brad Marshall. Brad is recognized as one of Australia's leading experts in excessive internet use or internet addiction, otherwise known as gaming disorder and related disorders. As the director and founder of the Screen and Gaming Disorder Clinic, Australia's first established specialty clinic, he is a well-respected presenter and speaker on the topic, frequenting schools and parent seminars. He's the author of the parent book, Tech Diet for Your Child and Teen, which has been published in over a dozen countries worldwide. In his spare time, Brad is doing a PhD research program at Macquarie University, running clinical trials for gaming disorder. So Brad, as an author myself, can I say how much I absolutely loved your book? I think what I loved was you don't pretend to have a magic bullet for this massive issue, but you have this incredible personability in the book that comes across. It's real. And I think it's in ways that parents will find digestible and practical. It's just a fantastic resource. So thank you for this beautiful resource you've given parents. Oh, thank you, Claire. That's very kind of you. I certainly don't pretend to be an accomplished author, but I gave it a crack anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And you even say that in the book. And I think that's what makes you come across as honest and personable. So thank you. I remember, you know, around 15 years ago when I first began to notice parents coming to me with concerns about their children spending all night on devices. And when I worked as a school psychologist, then I would have principals or head teachers saying, what do we do? We've got kids falling asleep on desks and they look like they've changed their personality. Also, what we kind of saw was fear-mongering. I mean, honestly, the internet was the devil. And none of us in this field really had research guidelines to draw from for how we could help kids. We were all figuring this out. And I, I realized you were too. And I know this because a number of years ago, you and I shared a stage at the Exploring Teens Forum. And you told the story that I saw in your book about how you got into this area. Can you tell us about that? Sure, sure. Yeah. So many years ago, um, I was working in a, a child and adolescent mental health unit um, in a major hospital in Sydney. These are sort of great big meetings that they have and, and the head psychiatrist, their child psychiatrist and all these very experienced people. And here's, you know, green psychologist, Brad, youngest in the room, just trying to stay very quiet. And what they do is they discuss different referrals that come in and who's going to see them and how they're going to be approached and assigned and whatnot. It's nothing all that dramatic, but 
essentially um, this young man referral came through and he was, I think, early teens and he was really stuck on Harry Potter. It was an online world that he'd immersed himself in and essentially it wasn't even a game. It was just like a website where he was playing along a role and so he'd taken this role of a teacher at Hogwarts and so as the team were discussing who's going to see this young man because he'd stopped going to school and he, he was getting quite aggressive and just things were going downhill for him, all of a sudden everyone was very quiet as to who was going to see him. And then the very senior professor at the time said, well, Brad, you're it. And I kind of lifted my head and I said, what do you mean I'm it? And he said, well, you game, don't you? And I, I mean, yeah, I'm a young child psychologist. I'm male. Like, I mean, I have gamed. I do kind of still at that time. And he said, well, you're it because you know more about this than anyone else does here. And that was literally how I got started in this path, you know, that it was not some grand plan for me some almost 15 years later to obviously I am the director of the Screens and Gaming Disorder Clinic and I'm doing a PhD research in this area now as well and I've written the parenting book. But yeah, I didn't plan any of that. I was just literally in uh, the, the right place at the right time, I suppose. Incredible. That makes me think of kind of your calling choose as you. Um, so for me, the opposite side of the fear mongering, I think you and I have both experienced this when teachers and psychologists sometimes they get comments by parents that say, oh, for goodness sake, I played Atari computer games when I was a kid and I turned out just fine. What's the issue? So what do you say when parents or adults say that to you? Yeah. I mean, look, you know, we could talk about this all day. I could completely geek out on this, but the main thing that I point out to parents is that if you look at some of the functional MRI studies, so you know brain mapping and whatnot, and the reason I refer to these studies, Colette, is because they're fairly irrefutable by the gaming industry. So what I mean by that is many other studies that don't use functional MRI on neurological markers, um, the gaming industry will find a way to shout them down. But with these sorts of studies, what we found is that if you do a functional MRI for a child or an adult for that matter and you give them an offline game versus an online game, what they found is that there's a much bigger dopamine response to online gaming. So fundamentally, you know, what I did in the 80s and 90s and what most parents these days still um, would have done is offline gaming. You're just playing the computer versus now it's a much more social interactive thing. And it doesn't matter whether it's a child's best friend from school or some guy that they've met or some random person from America there's still a much bigger dopamine effect. And that's one of the many reasons, but the main reason why gaming these days, you know, has a much bigger uh, addictive quality. My second guest is Wayne Warburton. Wayne is an associate professor in developmental psychology at Macquarie University in the Department of Psychology, and he's also a registered psychologist. Prior to academia, Wayne had a long history working with vulnerable and low-income clients, most notably with their financial and gambling problems. Wayne is passionate about teaching that inspires students, parents, policymakers, and professionals who work with children and teens. I have known Wayne for more than 10 years. He was the person who taught me about the effects of violent media on young people's development and I actually have friends whose young adult children are studying psychology at Macquarie University, and he's a very much loved lecturer. I asked Wayne to give us an explanation of where internet gaming disorder sits currently in the classification systems used by practitioners around the world. 
Okay, so the DSM-5 is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, which is the diagnostic manual that psychiatrists in Australia and the US mostly use to diagnose if someone has a mental health disorder. There is another one called the International Classification of Disease used by the World Health Organization. They have a similar disorder called gaming disorder. It has slightly different criteria. In the DSM, this disorder, internet gaming disorder, was included in a section for disorders requiring further research. Um, back in 2013. That's because it's the first new really big disorder to go into the DSM for a long time. And before it goes into the main body of the manual, they wanted to have a lot of research behind it. There has since 2013 been an enormous amount of research on internet gaming disorder. And I suspect that when they bring us the DSM-5R in the next year or two, it will be put straight into the section with all the other addictive disorders. I would note here that any addictive disorders, which include chemical dependencies and alcoholism and so on, um, it already has gambling disorder in there because in the brain, you really cannot tell the brains apart from a person who has, for example, behavioral addiction like gambling disorder and a drug addiction. And that's where we would expect this to go because the brain imaging studies show very similar patterns. So now you know a bit about what we as psychologists look for in teens who struggle with internet gaming disorder. I also asked both my guests to talk about how that compares to regular healthy usage. So the diagnostic criteria are preoccupation, which is basically thinking and talking about it all of the time to the exclusion of lots of other things. Withdrawal which means you're feeling irritable and anxious or sad, you know, emotional withdrawal symptoms when you can't. Tolerance, which is basically wanting to do it more and more. Unsuccessful attempts to stop it. You know, you want to stop, but it just isn't working. Losing interest in other things. So starting to, you know, drop things like sports or other activities so you can continue to game. Keeping doing it despite the fact it's having negative impact on you. So, for example, your school grades might be going down, you might be getting into a lot of conflict at home, but you keep on doing it despite the fact that, you know, it's not that great for you. Lying to other people about how much you do it. Um, you know, we, we've certainly seen stories of kids as young as six or seven, for example, you know, setting their alarms in the middle of the night when they know everyone in their house is asleep and getting up and, and playing online games for a few hours and then going back to bed for an hour or so before they know that everybody gets up. Using it to manage your feelings or to, to escape negative feelings, so you're using it for emotional control. And the last one is losing or jeopardizing a significant relationship or opportunity or, or something important to you in order to keep gaming. Now, to meet the diagnostic criteria, you need to have five of those symptoms at a pretty severe level pretty consistently across a year. I mean, it doesn't have to be all the time for a year, but you know, you're spending a lot of time where it's a big problem over the past year. So the level of impairment is a lot and the amount of time is, is a year or more. To answer the question of just when should parents be concerned, at the top end, we do, again, have functional MRI studies out of the United States in 2019. There was a big longitudinal study, 10,000 kids over four years, that basically found that when you go over seven hours of recreational screen use a day, whether it's YouTube or Discord or social media or Snapchat, whatever, it doesn't matter, seven hours of recreational screen use. When you go over that, the authors of this study found that the brain cortex was thinning prematurely in kids. So neurological impacts that, that I would suggest are not ideal. Now, do we know whether they, that can be reversible or not? I, I guess we'll find out in 10 years when we revisit that. But seven hours in a school holidays, for example, in a day is, is the maximum. Now, I often talk to parents about other warning signs. So 
when gaming or screens is impacting their education, their behavior, their social life, their sleep or exercise, all of these things are things that I take parents through in my book and my videos about their other warning signs. Now, in my experience, that can be impacted at three hours, four hours, five hours, who knows? It's different for every kid. So in my other episodes, I talk about general cyber safety. And so we touched a bit now on time. Can you talk about how online addiction is different then to general topics on cyber safety? I'm really glad you asked that question, Colette, because I, I think this is something that is really confused by politicians, by you know health bureaucrats and whatnot. There is a big push in the last 10, 15 years about cyber safety, and, and rightly so. It's a very important topic. But I think that that gets confused with overuse or gaming disorder or internet disorder or just problematic use of too much. There is an overlap in my experience in the sense that a child that is on screens, say, seven or eight hours a day in the middle of the night, no rules and boundaries around it in their bedroom, they are more likely to get into cyber safety problems as well. Not as a rote rule of thumb, but just in general, if you think about it, 2 a.m. messaging allows for some more uh, less transparency. But at the same time, they are very different. And so I do feel like we've made this conscious effort and push to educate parents and, and put a lot of strategies in place around cyber safety, but we haven't really done much as far as overuse. And that's the crossroads that Australia is at at the moment, because if you look at, uh, say, Singapore or Hong Kong, the UK, Belgium, they all have dedicated treatment centers and They've got a, a collaborated way that from research through to political motivation, but in Australia, there's just none of that. So we're really struggling. Wow. Wow. So there's a, there's a massive need there then. We often hear in the media that this generation are just addicted to their gaming devices. So I asked both Wayne and Brad about who might be most at risk for developing internet gaming disorder. The incident rates or the prevalence, as we call it, of how many kids have gaming disorder or internet gaming disorder is about 1% to 3% of Australian kids. Okay, Now, again, if you think about this as a problem for Australia, there are some 5 million kids in Australia, you're talking about up to 50,000 that have a diagnosable clinical disorder in this. Now, the research also tells us uh, in Australian schools that up to 10% are at risk or have problematic use or hazardous use. So 10%, again, is 500,000. You know, the perfect storm is created by um, two key factors. The first one is if your child has problems with focus and attention, difficulties with self-control and impulsivity, thinking through consequences, stuff like that, impulse control on one side. On the other side, it's the child whose online life meets a whole lot of needs and aren't being met in their offline life. So, you know, to give some examples of key needs, you know, the child might feel pretty socially isolated or not have any friends offline, but online they feel like they have lots of friends. Um, that child might have low self-esteem offline, but when they're online, you know, they feel pretty good about themselves. They might not be good at very many things offline, but when they're online, they feel like they're good at lots of things. Um, when they're offline, they might not have much control over the world, um, not much independence and, and you know sense of agency, but when they get online, they have a lot of control over the environment and they feel like they're kind of the master of their destiny, you know, when they're in their games or what they're doing online. I guess the, the other thing we'd throw into there is that the products are designed to be addictive. 
then these kids who are already having problems with impulse control and the games are meeting all of these needs and aren't being met elsewhere, that kind of creates this perfect storm where it's very, very difficult to get away from the screen. The other thing we found was that you see more problems in families where there's a poor attachment between parent and child or where there's a family environment that's not particularly warm and connected. So those are the sorts of things that, that cause risk. The other thing that we found in our study was that as risk factors accumulate, the risk of having a, a serious problem accumulates. And it happens in a linear fashion. For every additional risk factor that you add, then the likelihood of having a serious problem grows about the same amount. So going to the addictive nature of games, can you just unpack that a little bit? Sure. Look, this is a business decision. Right. If your competitor has a social media platform or a video game that keeps people at the screen at, at addictive levels, then you need to do the same or better if you're going to be competitive in the market and there's a very competitive market. So what the manufacturers do is that they build in all sorts of neuroscience principles to make things more addictive. And once they've built those principles in, they usually attach um, those platforms to a you know, large artificial intelligence that monitors every user in real time. And what the artificial intelligence does is that, you know, from second to second, it's determining for every user what your vulnerabilities are, what you're thinking, what it thinks, well, what, what it believes that you're thinking, what it believes that you're feeling, and it targets what you're getting. In terms of the advertising, for example, it might say, oh, you yeah, know, from what I'm, I'm hearing and, and seeing from, you know, the inputs from this person, you know, I think they might be feeling a bit lonely, so you might get an ad for, you know, a dating agency. If it decides that you know you're starting to lose interest, that your attention is waning, then it might give you pop-ups and banners and all and prompts and all sorts of things to kind of bring your attention back to the screen and so on. So people get this bespoke personal experience the artificial intelligence gives them that's designed to keep you at the screen, along with all these neuroscience principles. One of the, the key things in neuroscience that happens is that the way the reward system works is that. When we think something really nice is coming, something we're really going to enjoy, something's going to be pleasurable, then the brain releases dopamine in anticipation of it. And that kind of says to us there's something cool coming. It produces the most dopamine when we don't know when it's going to come. So we kind of think something's coming, but we're not sure when. That's when the brain really kind of goes into overdrive and, and produces dopamine. And what dopamine does is it's a motivational kind of, you know, part of our motivational system where if the dopamine's flowing, we're kind of motivated to chase that thing and to do it because we know it's going to feel good. Now, with most things in life, we have this kind of break that goes with the accelerator, right? The dopamine is the accelerator. But once you get there, once you get to the end, you know, once you feel satisfied, then the brain changes. It releases other neurochemicals to dry up the dopamine and, you know, replace that sense of urgency to do something with a sense of contentment and satisfaction and, and, and you know, peace and happiness and so on. And, it's really important that for most things that along with the accelerator, we have the break, you know, otherwise, you know, you would eat till you died or have sex till you died or do other pleasurable things till you died, right? Because the break would never kind of kick in. What most social media and video game platforms do is that they create a situation where you're never satisfied. There's no closure, no conclusion, no ending, endless levels, a story that never ends. You know, if you get one like, you need another one and the amount has no limit to it. It's all accelerator and no brake. They're designed to keep the dopamine flowing, but to stop the brakes from kicking in. And that's one of the key things that keeps us at the screen. You're not alone if you are feeling overwhelmed right now about battling all these risks. 
I have a teenage son too, and he enjoys gaming with his mates. So I wanted to know what the research says about what we can do to keep our kids' relationship with their technology at healthy levels. So Brad, in your book, you you talk about cyber contracts, and I've spoken to thousands of parents about cyber contracts and boundaries and I especially appreciate how you say in your book, there isn't a cookie cutter, one size fits all for every child because that doesn't work for every child. Just talk to us a little bit about how you approach the contract idea with parents. Yeah. And in fact, I mean, I was just speaking with one of the other psychologists in the screens and gaming disorder clinic and talking to him about this very issue. And the reason that we do it on a whiteboard in the clinic for families is because it does have to be changeable. And I I guess I've commented many times and been on the record that in my experience, when you have a child or a teen that gets one of those cookie cutter off the internet, you know, this will solve your child's problem, let them sign this contract, they are going to run for the hills. They will not sign that, most of them. And if they do sign it, then they're usually the kids you probably ironically don't have to worry about so much. So, I guess my approach is more to encourage parents to do it as more of an organic thing. Now, I know that still means it needs structure and they need guidance. And so I take parents through how to do that. But essentially what I mean is trying to come to some agreement with a a child about their recreational use and where the boundaries are, when the internet's going to go on and off and how we're going to do that on weekdays versus weekends versus holidays. And we try to do that in an organic way on a piece of paper or a whiteboard and then just take a photo of it. I love that. And and I think, you know, I've even said to parents, that's going to even change with your child's age because they they may be, you know, um, now using social media, which they weren't when they were 11, 12. So those kind of things change. Um, and, and, you know, so even in your own home, because you'll have different ranges of ages of, um, of your children, you will have different contracts that will evolve for each child. So thank you for for. Um, just lending your weight to that. So in light of that, what do parents say then when they have a child who just says, I will not hand over my device or I won't get off my game? Uh, I think a lot of parents um, struggle getting their kids off of a gaming device. What do you advise? Yeah. I mean, so this is one of those issues where I feel like a lot of my colleagues and I differ. Um, I think there's many people that would speak in this space um, that would advocate that the parents should just take devices, just take the device off them, you know, um, just be a parent. And and, and to me, that's the most unhelpful advice a parent can get. Um, I think it gets quite stressful. And if I'm honest, that advice usually works for primary school kids. Um, We're seeing younger and younger boys. So once they get to year four, year five, quite often that results in physical aggression, stuff getting broken, really stressful stuff. Now, I'm not talking about the 90%. There might be 90% of parents that say, I can just take the device off my kid. They give their phone in, that's fine. I'm talking more about the 10%. And again, that's not a small number. So my advice to those families and what I've found works best in the clinic um, is to actually focus a little bit more on controlling the Wi-Fi because without the Wi-Fi, those devices are fairly useless. And so we do that very through various different modems and whatnot. And In parents' defense, I think lots of parents have tried to do this and been sold some software or something that, that, you know, claims to be able to do this and the child can get around it really easy. So I think it's really stressful for parents because they they have great intentions 
and they think they're doing the right thing by taking some software and realize that their 10-year-old can get around it very quickly. So, but in a broad answer to your question, rather than taking devices, especially when they head towards the teenage years, we move more towards managing the Wi-Fi. I know that this can seem quite bleak. And I had a discussion with Brad that this area doesn't have enough funding or support for our young people with internet gaming disorder. However, when I spoke with Wayne, I found his research fascinating in that it also highlighted certain protective factors that lower the likelihood of a child developing problematic internet use. Here is what he found. If you have protective factors, things that, you know, good self-control, you know, warm family home, you know, you feel good about yourself, you've got lots of offline friends, you've got lots of things offline, then with every added protective factor, there's an increasingly low likelihood of you having any sort of problem. And what we found was when you get to about six protective factors, you don't need any more. That gives you about the maximum protection you need. When people got to about five or six net risk factors, that's when they reached the the really serious problematic levels. So in our sample, um, we spoke to about a thousand school students. We found that 2.8% of them had internet gaming disorder criteria. So they would have met criteria for a diagnosis for internet gaming disorder. Those people tended to have a net risk factor score of somewhere, you know, around five to six. What that means clinically and for parents is that if you can kind of turn those things around, you can really make a big difference. So if you turn around three things, for example, your net risk score might go from six to zero. And what that might look like is if your child doesn't have many offline friends or they don't feel very good at communicating with other people or if they feel a bit socially isolated, if you can work with them on communicating and developing friendships and you know, finding peer groups in offline activities, then that's one risk factor that becomes a protective factor. If you look for things that they're good at in the offline world and you work with them to develop those skills and help them to build their identity around these other offline things that they're good at, it might be sport or it might be you know, something else that you think, well, you know, they're pretty good at this. Let's see if we can develop it. Then that turns another risk factor around where they're starting to build their self-esteem around you know, things that they feel good about themselves for offline. If they don't have much control over their environment and you start to give them control over things. You know, I say to parents, don't do anything for your child that they can do for themselves. If our kids have this growing sense of control offline and they have less of a need to have control online, then if you can turn those sorts of things around, you can turn your child from having, you know, really substantial risk of a, of a big problem to having very little risk wow. at all. So, Wayne, what would you say are your most positive messages to parents around your research, what do you think parents need to hear? I think what parents need to hear is that if, if your child has a problem, work out what role it plays in their life. Why are they doing it? You know, what needs is it meeting? And when you get a sense of, of what needs it's meeting for your child, then see, well, are there ways that we can work together to meet those needs offline in another way? One of the things that I think is true of people, and I know people don't like to hear this in the digital world, but If you can have the same thing in the real world or the virtual world, people prefer to have it in the real world. People may use the online world as a proxy and it might feel very good, but if you can do things, be good at things in the real world, people generally prefer that. They like to have their life in the real world wherever possible. And if you can help your child who's having problems online to have that really rich life in the offline world, then it's going to help them manage the online world, get the best from it, whilst 
you know, hopefully not getting any of the pitfalls and traps and difficulties that come with it as well. The second thing I'd like to say is that one of the things I think we need to be teaching in schools and teaching our kids is that a media diet should be like a food diet. You know, the same principles apply. And those principles are, are firstly moderation, right? Not too much, not too little. You know, I don't think it's helpful um, being prescriptive and saying nothing unless the child is under two, then there's no known benefits, but plenty of things that can go wrong. And the second thing is like the food pyramid, you want more of the good stuff and less of the not so good stuff. So the green leafy vegetables of the media world, you know, educational and pro-social media and the stuff that you know is helping your child, you know, develop into the sort of person that, you know, they would want to be in the, the directions you would want them to go in. The, the fats and the oils and perhaps the poisons, you know, are the things that, you know, are, are violent or antisocial or, you know, fake news or stuff that's mind-numbing, you know, the sort of things that you know are really not helping very much. And again, we're not being prescriptive. We're just saying what you want is a lot more of the good stuff and, and less of the stuff that you know isn't being helpful, right? More of the green leafy vegetables, yeah, and less of the things at the top of the pyramid. Brad gave us some great advice on setting up flexible tech boundaries where we work with our teens rather than just simply taking everything away. And I found Wayne's reminder about maintaining a healthy relationship with our teens really hopeful because there are things that we can do right now to ensure that there are protective factors present in our teens' lives. You can find Brad at unpluggedpsychologist.com. If you want to find out more about what Wayne has been doing, you can find his research and projects on the Macquarie University website, which is linked in the show notes. You can also find me or leave a question for a future episode at raisingteenagers.com.au or via the Raising Teens page at hopepodcast.com.au. Please subscribe and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'd love to see you next episode. And in the meantime, keep parenting with your teen's future adult in mind. This episode was hosted by Colette Smart, edited and produced by Alec Green, video edited by Christian Valenzuela, imaging by Lucy Weil, and social media by Beth Rivers. This is a Hope 1032 production. Thanks for listening.